Good morning. My name is Dave Heinrichs. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to be together this morning. Uh, some of you might be wondering about the roses uh, that are on the table up front. Those are in remembrance of our brother, Art Zink, who passed away uh, a couple years ago, right? One year ago, one year ago. And um, this morning, his wife, Frida, is visiting us and is able to be with us here this morning. So it's great to have you, Frida. Uh, Well, I would be remiss if I didn't say Happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there, and especially I'm going to give a special shout out to my mom, Betty, who's watching via the live stream. So there you go. Kudos to me. Yes, done. <laughs> Just kidding. I already celebrated Mother's Day with her on Friday. That's, you know, not the extent of my love. But I do love being a parent. I'm fortunate to be a parent to two boys myself, and I love, love to tease and joke around with my two boys. In fact, I would say that teasing, that's my love language. Yeah, that's legitimate. It's a love language. You haven't heard of that? You got to get my book, The Six Love Languages. So sometimes we or I can get a little bit carried away when it comes to the teasing, right? So for example, one of my sons and I, we have this game. We affectionately call it Touched You Last, right? It's pretty self-explanatory. It's like tag, but it's amped up a thousand percent. And this game, Touched You Last, it's resulted in uh, holes in the drywall, broken closet doors, and one epic time it resulted in me writhing on the floor in pain as I went to go hug my son goodnight, and he touched me last right off the bunk bed ladder. Yeah. Now, on less painful occasions, I might tease my boys by playing uh, more harmful, like less harmful little jokes on them, like waking them up early in the morning and saying, snow day, right? But only for it to be like eight degrees outside. They don't get that joke yet. <laughs> now, you might be surprised to learn that teasing like this, it can actually have some unwelcome repercussions besides just holes in the wall and grumpy mornings. There have been a few occasions where I'm telling my kids some news, whether good or bad, and they don't quite know whether to believe me or not. So they will take a sideways glance and look at Andrea for confirmation of whether I am telling the truth or whether I am just kidding. And I don't like the fact that my teasing sometimes causes my children to doubt whether or not I'm telling the truth. I want them to know that as their father, I'm going to come through with them for them no matter what, right? So I'm learning to have limits when it comes to loving my children like this because ultimately, I want my kids to have faith in me. And that when it comes to things, especially the really, really important things in life, that they can trust that their dad will come through for them, that I will deliver for them because I love them. Now, the Bible, it describes God as our heavenly father and says that he loves us as his very own children. Throughout the scriptures, we're told about his character, and one of the major aspects of God's character is that he is completely dependable. That God will do what he says. We never need to doubt God. We never need to wonder, is he just kidding? No, our Heavenly Father will come through for us so that we can trust him. We can have faith in him. This morning we're looking at a very familiar Bible story for many of us in Daniel chapter 3. So I'd encourage you to open your Bibles there if you have them. And in this story we see that we can trust God 
because he delivers. Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image that he had set up. So all of these officials and the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horns, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of all those instruments making all kinds of music, all the nations and people of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of all these instruments making all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of God, of the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into the blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, you three, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I've set up? Now, when you hear the sound of all these instruments making all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you? From my hand. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up these three and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. And the king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So they came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their head singed. 
Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. What a story. It's incredible, isn't it? Now, the first thing we see here is that Nebuchadnezzar has set up this giant statue. He has it constructed, covered with gold, and then he calls all the people of power and prestige to gather together for the dedication of this giant idol, where he then informs them of a new law that has come down, that they are to worship this image of gold that he has set up. Every time the the band strikes up and plays this song, they are to bow down and worship it. But if they don't bow down and worship, they will be executed and thrown into a giant furnace, perhaps the very same furnace that they used to make this huge idol. Now, we're not sure what this statue or image looked like. Perhaps it was fashioned to look like King Nebuchadnezzar himself. Maybe he was inspired by this dream he had in the previous chapter of this giant statue that had a head of gold, which we're told represented him and his kingdom. Or perhaps it was fashioned after one of the Babylonian gods, like Naboo or Marduk. But either way, what the statue looked like isn't nearly as important as why Nebuchadnezzar built it. You see, summoning all these important officials and having them worship his statue was Nebuchadnezzar's way of compelling them to display their loyalty to him. It was the king's way of solidifying control over all of the diverse elements of his vast empire. By worshiping his idol, these leaders are displaying their allegiance to him, but to refuse to bow down and worship the idol would be seen as treason, and the punishment for treason is death. So starting in verse 8, we see some astrologers, or maybe some of your Bibles say Chaldeans, come and they snitch on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for not bowing down to this image. Are they coming and telling Nebuchadnezzar this, out of loyalty to him? Probably not. See, the text seems to indicate that these accusers, they're motivated by either professional jealousy or perhaps racial prejudice. You see, it signals in, they're signaling the three out as Jews in this passage twice in both verse 8 and verse 12. You also may recall in chapter 2 that these three received job promotions along with Daniel after he successfully interpreted the king's dream. So it's probably a combination of these two things why they're motivated to tell Nebuchadnezzar. Racial prejudice and professional jealousy. But the reason that that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't go along with the crowd and bow down and worship this image is the fact that they aren't a part of the crowd. Remember, these are Israelites who have been exiled to Babylon. They're They're there against their own free will. And back in Exodus chapter 20, God gave the Israelites the Ten Commandments, rules to live by so that life would go well for them. And the very first two commandments are these. 
you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. So by refusing to bow to the image, these three remain loyal to God, but in turn, their faithfulness to Yahweh is seen as treachery to Nebuchadnezzar. See, when he finds out about their descent, Nebuchadnezzar just loses it. And like many people in positions of power throughout history or even today, Nebuchadnezzar, he's characterized by paranoia and insecurity. When things don't go his way or when he feels threatened, he launches an all-out assault on Twitter, right? Well, no. Then he brought these three in and he gives them an ultimatum. He says in verse 15, If you're ready to fall down and worship this idol that I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be immediately thrown into the blazing furnace. Can you imagine being faced with this kind of ultimatum? You know, last Sunday evening, a number of us gathered here to watch a film that the House of Omid, uh, that they presented to us. It was about um, Christians in Iran who faced this kind of persecution. I can't imagine being in a similar situation as that. Maybe we think that there's no decision to be made here at all. Like, how could they even think of giving up their high position, their royal favor, or even their lives for the sake of some eccentric religious beliefs, right? You just do what you got to do. Desperate times call for desperate measures. So just get on with life. Bow down to it. It doesn't have to mean anything. For these three, it does mean something. It means something significant. You see, just as not bowing down to the golden image meant disloyalty for Nebuchadnezzar, bowing down to it would have meant disloyalty to Yahweh. And unfaithfulness to God is why these three and their fellow Israelites ended up in exile in Babylon in the first place. You see, their forefathers and foremothers were unfaithful. They put their trust in in alliances with other world powers for their security rather than in trusting Yahweh for their safety. They went along with worshiping idols because, hey, that's what all of the neighbors are doing rather than being set apart and worshiping Yahweh alone. And in Deuteronomy chapter 4, the Lord says, If you then become corrupt and make any kind of idol doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God and arousing his anger, I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you this day that you will quickly perish from the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You will not live there long, but will certainly be destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the people, and only a few of you will survive among the nations to which the Lord will drive you. You see, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego Their exile is a direct result of their ancestors' disloyalty to Yahweh. But more than just knowing that things won't go well for them if they are unfaithful to God, these three have confidence in him because he has been faithful to them in the past. They trust God because he delivers. Remember what happened in chapter 1? When they first arrived in Babylon, right, they committed themselves to not eating the food from the king's table, to only eating the vegetables because they wanted to be faithful to God. 
And yet, when they were presented before the king, they were found to be healthier than anybody else. And God also gave them knowledge and wisdom and discernment. God didn't fail them then. And then last week in chapter 2, right, Nebuchadnezzar, he's planning to kill them along with all the rest of the wise men in Babylon because he couldn't get any of them to not only interpret his dream, but to tell him what his dream was. And yet, God shows mercy once again to these three as they and Daniel, they cry out to him and he delivers them again from that disaster. I believe what helps Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to stand firm and faithful to God in this moment is that they are quick to recall God's faithfulness to them in the past. And we would be wise to do the same. See, I often get myself into trouble when I forget what God has done for me, when I face temptation or a difficult situation, and then I try to resolve things on my own, right? By taking shortcuts or just acting impulsively, this is when I tend to get into trouble. But how many times has God been faithful to me and my family in the past? Tons, tons of times. And I would be so much better off in the moments where I'm faced with a difficulty if I were to call to mind God's faithfulness to me in those past times and trust him in the current moment that I'm facing rather than relying solely on myself, which I do far too often. This is why it's so important that we do things like read our Bible. So important why we why we tell stories about God's faithfulness to previous generations. In fact, this is why we celebrate holidays, right? They're actually holy days. Like when God delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt in Exodus 13, he tells them, you are to remember this with a celebration, right? And in the future, he says, your children will ask you what this ceremony means and explain it to them by saying, the Lord used his mighty power to rescue us from slavery in Egypt. It's why they celebrated the Passover. It's why once a month we celebrate the Lord's Supper, right? to remember how God rescues us and to remind us once again that he can be trusted. We need to be quick to recall the acts of God's faithfulness towards us in the past so that when we are faced with the trouble of today, that we can trust that he will deliver us too. And Nebuchadnezzar, he would have been better off if he had been mindful as well, wouldn't he? It was only at the end of the last chapter when Daniel interprets his dream, Nebuchadnezzar proclaims, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. How quickly he forgets. But rather than recall that moment, Nebuchadnezzar taunts these three and their God by saying that if they don't worship the image that he has set up, they'll be tossed into the furnace. And then he says, Then what God will be able to rescue you? From my hand. How arrogant. But I love the way that these three respond to him. And there's a lot that we can learn when we face opposition or criticism for our faithfulness to Christ. First of all, notice that they aren't rude and they don't get all agitated. They stay calm and they just simply state what they believe, right? 
And too often these days, whether in person or in social media, Christians, we can sometimes come across as uncharitable or angry with those who disagree with us rather than being marked by the fruits of the Spirit, like peace and patience and self-control, just to name a few. Second, they say to the king, I love this, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. This is good news, friends. We don't have to defend ourselves to others when it comes to our faithfulness to God, which is causing us to live differently to the world around us. 1 Peter 3 tells us that we should be prepared to give an answer to anybody who asks you for the reason, for the hope that you have, but to do this with gentleness and respect. Peter says that we should be prepared to give an answer, but he doesn't say to us, that we have to give a defense, to make a case, to vindicate or to justify ourselves, right? God is the one who will justify us for our faithfulness to him. It won't be our brilliant strategy or amazing apologetics that does it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they give their answer with gentleness and respect, but they don't feel the need to defend themselves. Why not? Because they trust that God will do the defending for them. They say in verse 17, The God we serve is able to deliver us, and he will deliver us from your hand. I love it. So bold. You see, they're familiar with how God liberated their ancestors out of slavery in Egypt, how he miraculously saved them from their enemies' attacks throughout history They kept reminding themselves that since the time that they have been in Babylon, God's kept delivering them. So then why do they need to defend themselves for being faithful to him? It's their job to trust God. It's his job to defend and deliver them. And see, we don't need to defend God either. It's our job to trust him. It's God's job to deliver us. And I don't doubt that these guys knew psalms like Psalm 34. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all of my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called out and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all of their troubles. I think what makes their response to Nebuchadnezzar even more astounding is what they say in verse 18. That even if God does not save us from your hand, we want you to know your majesty. Notice how polite they are. That we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. See, this is incredible because this shows us something else about their faith. They had the utmost confidence in God's ability to rescue them in this situation. But they also envisioned that there might be a possibility that God chose not to. So they had the utmost confidence in God's ability to rescue them, but they also envisioned the possibility God may choose not to rescue them here. Yet their trust in him was not contingent on God protecting them or saving them from all harm or even death. 
This is loyalty that just amazes me. These guys did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die for their faith. Their trust in God superseded their love for their own welfare. Many years later, Jesus will say to those who are interested in following him, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for this gospel will save it. See, the Bible says, and I believe that these three actually understood that there's more to this existence than just life on this earth and that God's deliverance goes beyond just delivering us from our present day troubles or even death. But whether Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew about eternity or not, they knew that some of their people had already died at the hands of persecution and that it wasn't because God wasn't able to save them and it wasn't even because of a lack of faith. It was that God in his sovereignty and God in his wisdom chose not to save them. And we don't understand the reasons why God chooses to save some and not others. And this is really hard. But regardless of the outcome, whether deliverance or death, these three were not going to give in to the evil powers of this world. Their trust in God was wholehearted. And why shouldn't it be? God had shown himself faithful to them. Now this part here really hit home to me this week. When I drive from here to home, that's when I call my parents. And uh, this week I was talking to my dad who loves to talk all things church, especially to talk about the sermons I'm working on. And as most of you know, my dad is right now undergoing treatments for colon cancer. So we spoke about how different this story would be if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego made this courageous statement, but then God didn't rescue them out of this fiery furnace. We said it still would be a great, you know, it still would be a great story of incredible faith and the trust in the sovereignty and the goodness of God. It just wouldn't have such a happy ending to it. My dad commented, it's a good reminder that when we don't get the outcomes we're hoping and praying for, it doesn't mean that God isn't faithful or isn't capable. That God delivers even when he doesn't deliver the way that we expect him to. God delivers even when he doesn't deliver the way that we hope and pray that he will. So are we only going to trust him when things work out the way we want them to? Or am I going to trust and stay loyal to God when the heat gets turned up in my life or on those that I love or when things are really painful? You can imagine how Nebuchadnezzar took their response. He didn't really appreciate kind of his, their rebuff to his generous second chance to show him loyalty. And the passage says that his attitude towards them changed just like people's attitudes towards us may change when our fidelity to Christ doesn't fit with what they want from us. And so in this fit of rage, Nebuchadnezzar has the furnace cranked up and these three are bound hand and foot and tossed into the furnace. And that's when the most incredible thing takes place. God comes to the rescue and delivers these three from the furnace. Not only are they not burned up, 
but there is someone else in the furnace with them. And Nebuchadnezzar describes this someone else as looking like a son of the gods. Who is this person? We don't know. Church history loves to speculate at this kind of thing. Like, is it an angel? Or is it the angel of the Lord? Or perhaps this is a theophany. This is like an appearance by the pre-incarnate Son of God himself, right? Jesus. It's no good speculating. We just don't know. But whoever it was in the fire with these three, whether it was God himself or his representative, either way you look at it, God was with them. There in the fire was Emmanuel, God with us. John Calvin, he points out, God saved these three men in the fire, not from the fire. And this tells us about something about who our God is. This God that we trust. He is not a God who is detached or standoffish. He isn't one who doesn't understand the pain and the trouble that we go through in this world. The Bible tells us that Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, and in Hebrews 4, says that in every way we have one who is able to empathize with our weaknesses, who was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. The Bible goes on to say that not only is God approachable and wants to give us mercy and grace and help us, for the face, help us in the face of trouble, but that he comes to us in our times of need, just as he did with these three in the furnace, in order to be with us in the midst of our troubles and that ultimately God promises us that one day he will deliver us from them. Though he may not always save us from the fire, sometimes God saves us in the fire, but he is always with us in them. See, in my most difficult experiences in life, whether it's been the loss of life or a dream, or whether facing a crucible of a health crisis, it's been in these most painful times where the Son of God has met me most intimately in some of the most strange and surprising ways. Yes, sometimes it's been through Scripture, but other times it's been through dreams or just the words or even just the mere presence of a person. It didn't remove completely the sting of what I was enduring, but his presence in the midst of it, it gave me comfort. And I think it makes all the difference in the world, and I'm so grateful for it. And I'm not sure what fires or troubles that you might be facing today or what may come down the road in the future. But my hope is that you are putting your trust in God through his son, Jesus. Sending Jesus was God's ultimate rescue plan for the world that is full of Nebuchadnezzars, things that are vying for our allegiance, tempting us to compromise, pressuring us to conform to this agenda of what the world believes things should look like rather than the Creator's plan. And let's be honest, we all give in at times, right? Each one of us has bowed the knee to an idol, whether unintentionally or because we felt pressure. We know we've compromised because, as the Bible says, each one of us has sinned. Despite its claims for being a secular world, the culture that we live in, it's not rid itself of God, but instead what it has done, it has replaced him with other gods, namely the self. 
If God in Christ does not provide us with meaning, then we will fill that void or absence by constructing meaning of our own. And so we fill our lives with possession and power and people and pleasures or knowledge, you name it. But all of these substitutes for God, they're ultimately idols. And each one of these idols serves one thing, serves ourselves. And so each one of us, we have broken these first two commandments, that you shall have no other gods and you shall, have no, you shall not have any idols. So we've sinned. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so we can have hope. We have hope because we can have our sins forgiven, our lack of faith in God forgiven. Hope because we can turn from our sin, turn from those idols that are competing for our attention and allegiance, and we're given this another opportunity over and over and over again to put our faith and hope and trust in him. And we have hope that even if we are consumed by the troubles of this life, that ultimately and eternally he will deliver us into new resurrected life. Because this is who God is. He is the Messiah, the Deliverer. And this is his story throughout the Bible, delivering. He's always delivering. He delivered Daniel and his friends in chapter 1, chapter 2, and now we see it again in chapter 3. He delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. He delivered Jonah from the whale, Peter from drowning, Thomas from his doubts, Lazarus from the grave, right? And he even delivered me from my sin and continues to deliver me from every fiery situation that I find myself in because this is what God does. God delivers. And it's why Jesus came to earth. It's why they, God had him named Jesus because his name means Yahweh saves. God to the rescue. And he wants to deliver you too. So there's the invitation for each one of us today to cling to faith to choose to trust him that he will come through for you in the trouble that you are facing, that he wants to deliver you as well. As citizens of God's coming kingdom, it's here, but it's, it's not completely here yet. We are invited to live as exiles in this world, right? Our allegiance to Christ, it might be objectionable to the kingdoms and citizens of this world. We may feel like pressured or persuaded to give in to its ways. But like Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, we must not. God's instructions to us are clear that we are to live as foreigners awaiting his return. But while we are doing that, we must seek the prosperity and the peace of the city that he has sent us. Because if it prospers, we will prosper too. But we must remain faithful, trusting him and living as salt and light in this world. And one easy application that comes from this passage is that we need to avoid idolatry if we are going to remain faithful. This means much more than not worshiping idols and images, if only it was that easy. The threat of idolatry, it's more subtle than that in our day, and therefore it's more threatening to us. Idolatry can be defined as our ultimate concern. Anything or person that concerns us the most, those things we think about the most or affect us the most. 
And often idols in our day are very good things. Timothy Keller, he writes in his book, Counterfeit Gods, the human heart takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think that we, they can give us significance, security, safety, fulfillment if we attain them. Anything can be an idol, especially the very best things in life. So then I think it's very important that we regularly take inventory of our lives and of our priorities and that we critically evaluate what are those things that concern us the most and assess them, right? Is it really God or have other things crept in and topped the list? Do we need to repent, to reprioritize? And an easy way for us to do this is to spend a little bit of time looking at our thoughts, our money, and especially our time. You know, this task can be hard, but the purpose of this is really encouraging. The whole point of this is a closer walk with Jesus. So we need to avoid idolatry if we're going to remain faithful. Second, to remain loyal, we need to keep looking to God for our deliverance and not looking to any other powers to deliver us. See, at the end of this account, Nebuchadnezzar, he makes this decree against anyone who would say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Threatening to cut them into pieces and to turn their houses into piles of rubble. I, I, I don't think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were doing this like jump for joy, like, yeah, go get them, Nebi, right? It's nothing to celebrate, you see, this is not how God treated us when we were his enemies. And we should not be looking to political parties or any other earthly powers to uphold or protect the name of our God and our faith, as unfortunately it seems like many Christians do these days. Instead, our energies and concerns should be with our faithful allegiance to him. And let's allow him to do his own defending and delivering. He's more than capable of doing it. It's our job to be faithful. It's his job to defend and deliver. Finally, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we need to keep reminding ourselves of the times that God has delivered us in the past in order for us to trust him with today's difficulties. That's why I love that song that you led us in earlier, Michael. It just goes through all these different same God, same God, and tells the story that fits so perfectly with this. We forget way too easily all the times that God has been faithful to us. This is why the Bible constantly tells God's people to remember, keep remembering all the ways that he has rescued them and to commemorate these things with meals and parties every year. So maybe if there's one application we take home from today is that we need to have more parties celebrating God's deliverance in our lives. Seriously, that's your response to this? Let me say it again. Perhaps we need to have more parties celebrating God's deliverance in our lives. Yeah! Yes, we do. Right. And this is something that we can actually even do this week or even today, right? That we go out from here. We, we grab some people. Maybe we already have a party planned because it's a special day today, right? And over a meal, we recall with each other all the times that, not all the times, but some of the times that God has delivered us, right? And we ask someone, hey, tell me your testimony. 
Tell me how God rescued you from death and brought you to life. And if they don't have a testimony, well, here's your opportunity to share yours. And I'm sure that if we spent just a bit of time sharing with people the stories of how God has rescued us in all the different ways and different circumstances, man, we could be here for a very long time. Our God is good. We can trust him because he will deliver us. Let's stand and pray together and invite the worship team to come on up. Father in heaven, we give you great thanks for that you included this wonderful story about your faithful servants, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, standing up under the threat of an evil tyrant and death in order to remain faithful to you. It stirs my heart. I long to be that faithful to you. But Lord, I'm grateful that, that my faith isn't dependent upon how much courage I can muster it's based on how faithful and good you are and how you are faithful to always come through, that you will deliver us. Lord, we just pray that you would just, for any of us who are maybe wavering in our faith, who are feeling downhearted and discouraged, I pray that you would uh, help us to speak good words of encouragement to them, that you would encourage each one's soul right now, Lord, and that we can trust that you will come to our aid when we need you. We love you and we thank you for rescuing us through your son, Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.